Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for braving the rain. I want you to turn your Bibles, James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, we're going to continue in a series called Street Smarts. But uh, I wonder if how many Texans are here this morning? Raise your hand. Yeah, praise the Lord. God bless you. We're proud to have Texans and our Kansans here. But if you're a Texan, I want to take just a moment and draw attention to something in your bulletin today. If you didn't get this insert, I'm going to encourage you to lift your hand because I'm going to encourage you to call our state legislators. Uh, they're meeting again in a special session. They're halfway done, which means if anything's going to happen, it's got to happen pretty quick. And basically, as we've talked last week and more in depth, it's called the Privacy Bill, which is basically a bill that would protect your children primarily, but certainly anyone in terms of uh, 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 locker rooms, bathrooms, uh, kids that are in high school, uh, if uh, a biological male believes he's a female and they go on an overnight trip, a band trip or something, where is he or she going to stay? What room are they going to stay in? Well, the Bible says that we were created male and female. The Bible encourages modesty. And the Bible basically would say that gender does matter. And I want to encourage you to let your legislators know your opinion. And that's what this is. It's got not only information about it, front and back, but it's got phone numbers you can call. It's my understanding our representative from New Boston, Gary Van Dever, has not yet decided how he's going to vote. He supported the bill last go-round, and he's not yet supported so far. It'll make a difference if you call. I'm told particularly business people need to call because there's a lot of pressure on, the st on, on people to basically stop it from happening. And one of their, uh, they warn us, supposedly, that uh, businesses will suffer. But anyway, uh, I wish I had more time to tell you, but I want to encourage everyone, if you'll take this, I called my governor last week, I called my representative, a lot of, uh, lot of good numbers there, if you will take that step for our nation. Uh, James chapter 3 is where we're, we're, we're beginning. We've been doing a series called Street Smarts, which is a chapter-by-chapter -chapter study of the book of James. Now, the book of James is a book of wisdom. It's like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Uh, so when I say street smarts, I'm talking about wisdom. I'm talking specifically about God's wisdom because how many know if we apply God's wisdom to everyday life, we'll have a better life. If you apply God's wisdom to, in this case, issues of morality, issues of sexuality, issues of our marriage, our home, uh, our ethics, our character, we'll have a better life. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at three different sections uh, in James. The first one is a contrast between two kinds of wisdom. This morning, we're going to emphasize the difference between worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom. The second thing we're going to talk about is what the Bible calls a warning against spiritual adultery or worldliness. And lastly, uh, a, a section that always gets my attention. It's called, it speaks about boasting about tomorrow or presuming on our future. So let's begin James chapter 3 as we start with two kinds of wisdom, worldly and biblical. Now James 3.13, it asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? In other words, who's smart? Who knows what to do? Who knows what the right solution is? Who knows what the right answer is? And he goes on to say, by his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. In other words, don't just believe the right thing, but spiritually mature people do the right thing. They make the right choices. They make the right decisions. Now, as we speak about wisdom, <laughs> hey, I like rain in August. As we talk about wisdom from a biblical perspective, and again, there is, there, there's earthly wisdom and there's biblical wisdom. 
So the definition I'm going to use for wisdom is simply this, is applying biblical principles in decision-making to the practical issues of life. Applying biblical principles and you make your decisions to everyday life. The word understanding, it means to perceive and comprehend the meaning of ideas and facts. And this is important with a biblical worldview. So if I have true understanding, I've got to factor in biblical teaching. Because how many know wisdom is not determined by how many degrees I have? Wisdom is not determined by how many facts I know. Uh, I, I, may be, I may be super smart in jeopardy, but that doesn't make me a wise person according to Scripture. Uh, one of the most influential people in, in science today is a man named Stephen Hawking. Uh, he's a world-renowned atheist and agnostic. Uh, uh, he believes that uh, there is basically no God or there could be, but his beginning point is not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but yet he influences millions of people in their thinking about science and the future and what's going to happen on the planet. But I suggest to you he's a very educated man, but from the biblical perspective, he's not a wise person because true wisdom must take into account biblical principles. Uh, biblical wisdom is missing in our national debate about, I mean, if we talk about immigration policy, about health care, about gene editing, uh, tax policy. How many of the Bible speaks to all these issues? And I suggest to you the reason when you read something or hear it on the news or hear someone say it and it makes you angry about what's going on in our nation is your perspective is most likely a biblical perspective and you realize people are making decisions that are just out in left field because they don't have biblical wisdom. And this is basically the message of James. Mature Christians apply biblical truth to everyday life and they have good works that follow them. Now, let me, let's, let's, uh, let's take a peek at verse 14 because this is not what was, in, uh, what, what was happening in the lives of the people. Verse 14, James says, and he's talking to Christians, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Now, how many think it's quite likely that the person sitting behind you struggles with some ambition issues and jealousy issues? Don't look now, but could you say that all of us have these kind of struggles in life? He said, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above or from heaven. But this wisdom is what? It's earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. So here's where you see the contrast. God's ways, God's wisdom, wisdom of this world that has a spiritual influence to it. And the evidence of that is if there's jealousy and selfish ambition, there's going to be the fruit of disorder or confusion or evil practice. So what we believe, whether it's godly wisdom or, 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 or worldly wisdom, it's going to produce a certain type of fruit. Now, this idea of jealousy, it means to be envious, and in this context, to be afraid of rivals or even Christians as competition. This is not something that was just unique uh, uh, to that group of people, but in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the church in Ephesus he said, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. So what we're talking about in church, we're talking about a church split, people who still love the Lord, but something happens. There's envy, there's jealousy. Usually it's in the life of a leader. It's pride. I want to be in a position. He rallies people around them. Well, let me know this is destructive to the unity that we should have in the body of Christ. Now, as we're talking about earthly wisdom, let me give you an example, if I can perhaps uh, bring it into the world in which we live. Because I'm a firm believer 
if you believe the Bible, you have to be able to believe it not just as a, a book of history. For example, if you did a study of, of Western civilization or a study of American history, you'd know facts. You'd learn about Christopher Columbus and Thomas Jefferson. You'd learn George Washington. You'd learn about the Civil Rights Movement and, and, and all these different things. Those are facts that may or may not have bearing on you today. But to know the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and in particular, most uh, uh, certainly, the words of Jesus, it has to filter from the pages of the book we call the Bible into everyday life. Now, let me share a headline I, I read recently that caught my attention. It was from NPR, Nash, uh, the public radio, National Public Radio. And here's the headline. Should we be having kids in the age of climate change? Now, don't laugh. Should we be having children because of climate change? Now, you cannot live in America today and have escaped the fact that, 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 that there, there's a debate about whether mankind or humanity is causing our planet to warm or cool or depending on whatever the readings are. Everybody has an opinion, but I suggest to you there may be a biblical opinion or an unbiblical or a worldly opinion. There was a lecturer at the University in Virginia. His name is Travis Reeder. Uh, uh, he, he majors in philosophy, but he's teaching in this class, and he tries to convince students not to have children. And here's his quote. He said, maybe we should protect our kids by not having them. Now, whatever you think about climate change, I want to ask you the question when it comes to having children, is his assessment biblical wisdom or is it worldly wisdom? The scripture says in Psalm 127.3, children are the heritage of the Lord. In other words, to have children is an act of God's blessing. It's an act of not only uh, uh, increasing the, the human race, but it's personal benefit to the person. Children are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the, war, of the, uh, of the womb is what? His reward. God's reward is having children. In verse 5, it says, blessed is the person who have their quiver full. So listen, regardless of what's happening in the planet, how many believe that God created the earth and how many know the scripture in Colossians that says God sustains the earth? And how many know the scripture that we just read about children being a blessing from the Lord? So uh, whether you talk about this or any other subject, there's a biblical point of view, and that's what the world is hostile to, to the biblical point of view of life. I would even suggest Colossians 2.8. Colossians 2.8, uh, Paul said, See to it that no one takes you captive by Philosophy and empty deceit or deception according to what? Human tradition. In other words, the thinking of man. Any science class you take in America today, more than likely, will make no mention of God, will not allow any discussion of an intelligent designer, will not allow a discussion of the possibility of something outside of what we can see and quantify is involved. That's where you get the amoeba. It started with the Big Bang and, you know, it goes from there. But it keeps on going. He said, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So what does that imply? Some philosophies that are circulating in the world, the lyrics to the songs we sing, the theme of the movie uh, that, we, that we go to, uh, it, it is not only humanistic, but it is spiritual, it is demonic, and it is not of God. This is what's so important, not only we know the Bible, but that it filters into everyday life. And the fruit of this, of course, of worldly wisdom, it produces confusion and evil practices. James says one of the ways you know whether it's godly wisdom or worldly wisdom is what is it producing. 
Uh, is it envy and jealousy? I, is it violence? Uh, 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 is it confusion, evil practices, all of which we describe? Now, he's writing to Christians, and how many know that should be the opposite of what we're about as Christian people? How many know we should love everyone, whether they believe the way that we believe or not? We're called to speak the truth in love to people. But how many know sometimes the church can become worldly, and the church can become materialistic, I have a good friend, and uh, he told me not too, not too long ago, he said his life was really falling apart. I mean, he was just in the world. It was about to pull him down. He was about ready to give up and quit. And he, and he went to a church, and he talked to the pastor. And he said, the pastor talked to me about 10 minutes, about my life, about my soul. And then he started talking to me for the next hour about his business and trying to recruit me in his multi-level marketing business. Now, nothing wrong with multi-level marketing. Go ahead and plug me in. I'd love to have something. Are you with me today? But church is not about our downline. Church is about, come on, exalting the Lord and helping one another. And something's wrong if people feel like they're being manipulated, come on, or being used rather than drawn close to the Lord. And that's just one example because James is saying even good things can get off kilter or off base and we can lose the focus of the purity of Christ that we should have. Now, verse 17, he's going to contrast, and I'm going to try to paint a picture. And I wish I could have thought of something visual, but I'm just going to have to give you words. Now he says the wisdom from above. The carnality is envy and jealousy, but wisdom from above, and he has a list. And I'm going to suggest to you that this can and should be our personality. It should be our behavior, how we, how we relate to people in the world. And he says this, wisdom from above, that is how God wants us to behave, is first pure. To be pure, it means to be innocent, without moral defect, to not mixed with worldly values. How many know people that are committed to purity know when it's time to change the radio station? They, they know when it's time to walk out of the movie theater. Purity is not a religious obligation. Listen, I, I, I want to be pure to my wife. If I see a, a, a woman that's attractive and my wife, or even if my wife's not with me. Let's get down where we live now. Because you know if your wife is with you and you're gawking at some woman, come on, you're going to get the right hand of fellowship. Well, how many know we have a relationship with God? And every time we cloud it with sin, we walk away from this thing called purity. And I don't have to do it because I'm scared he's going to elbow me, but because I love him. First thing, purity. The second thing is peaceable. That is people. Have you ever around some people that just stir the pot? They just, they just stir. The Bible says get away from them because Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers. The third thing that the Lord says he wants us to be is gentle. That's kind. It's considerate. Uh, the fourth thing, open to reason. Not bullheaded, not dogheaded, but willing to listen, open to change your mind. Full of mercy. That means showing kindness and concern for people in need. Good fruits or good works, helping people. Impartial, that is we treat all people equally without, uh, without prejudice. And we're sincere. That is to be genuine, to have pure motives and without deceit. So think about just a second. We're contrasting two types of wisdom. One's characterized by envy, by jealousy, by strife, by confusion, by evil ways. The other's characterized by purity, pursuing peace, gentleness, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. How many would say that's the way I want to be? Come on. And that's how God wants us to be. Give the Lord a, a good hand. 
Now, let's go a little deeper with that. He's going to take that theme, and he's going he's to weave it into a warning. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 1. Now, he's moved from envy and jealousy and strife. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Come on, let me show me your fist now. Look at your neighbor here. What causes quarrels and fights? Some of you wouldn't do what I asked you to if I was offering you $20. I mean, <laughs> all right. What causes quarrels and fights? Is it not this, that your passions or your lusts are at war within you? In other words, there's a struggle to do wrong and a struggle to do right. Now look at verse 2 because it seems to be talking about material things. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill. Can you believe that? You kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. The church is as competitive as Burger King and McDonald's. Are you with me today? Our Facebook posts are as vile. You say, well, you're talking about somebody else. Well, let me give you an example of a church I found on YouTube. Uh, let's take a peek and we'll talk about it. This is, a, a, this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church right in the middle of service. It happened at New Salem Missionary Baptist Church Sunday tonight. We learned that police are investigating. Action News 5's Kanji Anthony is live in the studio tonight with the story. Kanji. According to the police report, a fight between two women near the choir section turned into a brawl between the two families. When police arrived, only three people from the brawl were left, and they're all listed as both suspects and victims. This police report tells two versions of what happened near the choir section at New Salem Missionary Baptist Church Sunday. Police took injury photos of three church members, but the photos are sealed. At the center of the altercation, Beverly Milam, her nemesis, Terry Bell, and Bell's daughter, Cheryl Lumpkin. Bell and Milam agree on one thing. The fight began with a verbal confrontation at Bible study last Wednesday. Milam said she told Bell to stop sleeping with somebody. She said Bell got in her face. Fast forward to first Sunday at New Bethel. Bell said she was walking from the choir stand during service around 1 p.m. when Milam approached her and said, are you going to do something today? Bell said she replied she was not going to get involved in something at church. At that point, Bell's daughter Lumpkin got between the two women. But a communion day catfight still followed. The two women at the center of the fight have different versions of how the blows began. Bell claims Milam struck her daughter. Milam claims Bell's friend Angel struck her in the face with an umbrella. At that point, family members jumped in. Milam says someone grabbed her by the back of her hair and threw her to the ground. A communion day catfight. Smacking each other with umbrellas, grabbing their hair and pulling them to the ground. I thought it would be hard to find videos like this. There were a bunch of them. I saw a group of, uh, of religious leaders. I think they called themselves priests. There were two apparently uh, Christian religious groups using the same building in Jerusalem, and they were, were shown cleaning the floor, and it was about 40 of them, and they were angry about who was going to be in charge, and they start beating each other with brooms and mops. And then I saw one where people got, after Bible study, they took their Bibles and started beating each other with their Bible. It's a true story now. And then I saw a pastor and a woman arguing on the steps in front of the church, and she slapped the pastor, and she smacked her back. 
I saw one. It was an altar experience. It was a large group of people. The pastor was going through praying for him. And when he got to this one man, the man looked at him and went, pow, and like cold cocked the preacher. I didn't want to show that because I didn't want anybody to get any ideas. <laughs> but why am I sharing this? The best of us have struggles. It's easy for us to look away at, you know, at how other people might do that. But you know what? Envy and jealousy and carnality, violence can push us into things that we wish we would never do. Well, how does this happen? There's a battle in our hearts because in this case, other people have what we want. Whether it's somebody's position, whether it's their girlfriend, their wife, their money, their car. And their passions is what James says. Their lust for pleasures makes us covet and envy and we use violence to get our way. Verse 2, he keeps going. You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, you don't pray and ask God. But you do pray, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this is not praying about daily bread. This is not praying for money for a vacation. But somewhere it takes a veer off what's good and wholesome. And then he says this, you adulterous people. He's not talking about sexual adultery. He's talking about something else having taken the place of God in our hearts. Material things. Do you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now that's a strong, strong statement to Christians. They had broken the 6th, 8th, and 10th commandment because they murdered, they stole, and they coveted. It was justified by worldly wisdom. That was, by that I mean a way of thinking it causes him to believe that it's okay. It's fueled by passion and lust for money. The Greek translation of this calls it hedonistic squandering. And this is the opposite of God's desire. Listen to what John warned in 1 John 2. John said, don't love this world or the things it offers you. And it's not talking about the planet and having a nice yard. It's talking about a philosophy of life. It says things like, whatever I have to do to get what I want is okay. We see this lived out particularly surrounding the election on the national stage. Whatever I have to do to say to get what I want, that's okay. We see today people advancing agenda on our streets. They use violence. How many know violence is not okay from a biblical perspective? This is all worldly wisdom. The world, all the world offers, verse 16, is a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and, and possessions. Nothing wrong with pleasure, nothing wrong for, with things or achievements or possessions. But when it, you start living for that rather than living for God, when we start loving these things more than God, that's where the problem is. The scripture says these are not from the Father, they're from the world. Well, the Bible teaches us that God gives us things to enjoy. But in so doing, he says, to be generous and willing to share with other people. It's not that things are bad. It's that what can happen when we let envy and carnality push us towards them. And you don't think conflicts happen like this? I've seen it among Christian siblings fighting over the will. Come on now. Over the inheritance, going in the house, taking because somebody else wants it. Let me tell you, friends, the church is the bride of Christ. And when we love things of the world more than God, it's spiritual adultery. We're having an affair with when we love things in the world more than the Lord, if we'll do anything to get them. Paul warns us about this in 1 Timothy 6. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many desires that plunge them into what? Ruin and destruction. Again, the things are not bad. The money's not bad. But if we're not careful, we can be pushed in a 
unbiblical way, worldly wisdom, justification can drive us, and we ended up in a ditch. Now, verse 6, if you would ask me today, say, Pastor, what was the, 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 your, your most special verse of the morning, the most profound verse of the morning? I'd say it's the first part of this next verse. After he's talked about jealousy, coving, violence, murder, taking from other people, what does verse 6 say? He gives... In other words, God says, look, knuckleheads, I love you. What you're doing is going to mess your life up. It's going to mess your marriage up. It's going to mess you up. It's going to mess your kids up. It's going to mess the church up. Listen, come back. Stop. Don't do that. And that's what the grace is. It's the goodness of God. It's not an affirmation to keep going down the wrong way, keep letting worldly wisdom define and control your life. It's simply God's way of saying, look, I've got a better way. And if you'll turn your hearts towards me, the Holy Spirit will give you the things that you're longing for in a good and valid and healthy way. Now, let me tell you how he kind of looks at these two issues, worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. He uses the words pride, which is all about self, and humility, which is God first and me second. He says this, God opposes the proud. That's a military term that means battle against. To be proud is to be selfish. It's all about me. Everything I've done is for me and because of me. I did it my way. I did it myself, and I deserve it. That's, that, that's the language of pride. But he gives grace to the humble. A humble man recognizes that all I am and all I have and all I'll ever be, come on, is because of Jesus. And isn't that exactly what the Bible says there? The Bible says in uh, Acts 17, 28, when, 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 when uh, Paul used an illustration of a secular poem, but he, he brought this to Christ as the answer to the, the, the people that were there. Acts 17, 27, uh, 17, 28 says, In Him, in Christ, we and move and have our being. Now, what does that mean? That means everything about me is because of the goodness of God. Think about it a second. I can't control the beating of my heart and the air that I breathe. I can't put oxygen in the air, but yet God does all that for me. I, I Googled yesterday how many cells are in the human body, and it was somewhere between 17 and 70 trillion, depending on how they counted or measured or weighed. And then they decided, let's pick a number of about 35 trillion, one and a half times the national debt. That's how many cells are in your body. Those cells, I'm not in control of my cells. If I was, I'd fix my hair cells. I mean, you understand. I'm not. You didn't have to laugh at that. I can't control my body. Millions of cells, I think I'm correct in this, millions of cells are dying every moment. But at the same time, my body is replenishing with millions of more cells. And I'm alive. And here I am, this proud guy thinking it's all about me and I can take care of myself. And I did it today and I can do it tomorrow. No, it's humility is what we're after. Well, how do you become this humble person? How do you get rid of the junk, the envy, the pride, the violence, and all that? And how do you become humble, someone that truly depends on God? Humility is hard to understand. Humility is not weakness. Humility simply recognizes that God's first, and it recognizes my place. That it's not about me, but it's about God. And I depend on Him. I recognize in Him I, I live, I move, I have my being. My success is not because of my education or experience or my good looks. My success is because of the goodness of God. This is humility. And now he gives you four things how to be humble. And the first thing he says is submit yourself to God. 
Now, again, a military term, but it means to be subordinated or render obedience. I mean, no, a sergeant uh, or a petty officer doesn't tell an admiral what to do. I mean, no, the admiral tells the petty officer what to do. And if the petty officer wants to enjoy his journey in the service in the Navy, he's going to say, yes, sir. That's the relationship that God wants with us, is to recognize that, 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 that he's, the, he's the parent, I'm the child, he's my father, and I willingly embrace it. Number two, it says resist the devil, and the promise is he'll flee, which simply implies that all their pride, their envy, their jealousy, it had a root tied to Satan. So whenever you see, you know, we laughed at the little church fight that we saw, who was behind that? Sure he was. Now, people are willing participants, and we feel justified because of worldly wisdom. The third thing he says is draw near to God. Now, he doesn't tell us how to do it, but can I tell you this, friends? I can absolutely assure you, coming to church, worshiping on Sunday in a, in a, in a downpour of rain, come on now, when you take time to pray, when you humble yourself, when you let somebody pray for you in the course of the service, when you get up and read your Bible, I mean, no, these are things that draw near to God. And the promise is, God will draw near to you. And the last one is, he said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking to Christians. And purify your hearts, you're double-minded. Our double minds mean that, that I like the ways of the world over here. And it makes sense to me. And, and I'm told it's my rights. But over here, the Bible gives me a different perspective of my behavior. This side says, get even. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. This side says, punish and hurt and kill. Get even, even if the police won't help me. This side, come on, says, love your neighbor. Love your enemies. So these are how, but this last one, cleanse my hands, simply means, it means that I am to turn around from my sin. I am to turn away from those things that God says are wrong and embrace those things God says are right. Come on, somebody give the Lord a, a, a big praise this morning. Now let me close with this last one. And this always gets me every time I read it. Because how many know when you have your health and when you have wealth or some measure of money, you don't need God? That's a trick question. You do, but we live like we don't. How many pray more when you're sick? Let me see your hand here. How many pray more when you have financial problems? How many wouldn't raise your hand no matter what I said? Sure we do. Listen to what he says. James chapter 4, and it's about a Christian business person. James says, come now or listen to me, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to Little Rock. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to lease a building. We're going to start a franchise. We're going to trade. We're going to make money. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? You're a mist that appears a little time and then vanishes. I love the fall when the crispness of the air turns cool. You get up on a fall morning and you may go out. You may be driving to work early in the morning and, and you go through a little valley and there's a creek there and there's a little fog mist that's there. And when the sun comes and shines on it, it's just got glory. If you're close enough, you can even see it, it reflections in the water drops. But after just a little while, it's gone. And that's exactly what the Bible says about our life. Someone had the audacity to come up to me between services. It was a young man. I'm assuming he was about 24. He had blue hair. And he said, he said, I, I enjoyed the church service this morning. I was looking at you. You look fit there. I hope I look good when I'm old. 
found out what old people do the other day. It's my wife's birthday on Friday, so we went out to eat at 5.30. And after we ate, we went to Sam's. And I saw, I think, four, three or four other couples. No, I saw five people, three couples and two single people, all from Church on the Rock, all who are my age. So I figured what you do when you get older. But the issue is, we think that tomorrow will be just like today. And James is saying, life is flying by. Notice what he says, this business person, self-confident, self-centered, self-assertive. But nowhere in that passage is mentioned God's will. James, going, it's like he left it out of the formula. Listen, and here's the problem. We talk and act as if we have control over the future. It's called presumption, and the Bible says it's wrong. We say it unconsciously every day, not because we're evil. Pretty soon I'll tell my mom when we're coming home for Christmas. I mean, after all, I've done it however many times, 50-something times in the last 60 years. And I'll say, Mom, we're coming home for Christmas. I'll probably preach that Sunday. It's Christmas Eve and then come home. So hopefully we'll have dinner that night. Maybe we can go over to my sister's house. But there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that I'll finish my sermon. There's no guarantee you'll make it to your car. There's no guarantee you'll make it to the restaurant or make it. Are you with me today? Here's what James says is missing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Mom, we'll go home at Christmas and we'll see you. Now, you don't have to always say it out loud, but it needs to resonate in our heart. Businessman, I'm going to Little Rock. I'm going to Dallas. I'm going to Fayetteville. I'm going to open a franchise. I'm going to start a business. And Lord willing, I'm going to be able to find a good building to rent. And I'm going to be able to, to, to find the right people to employ. And, and we're going to make some money. But it's all tentative. Because how many know I'm not in control of tomorrow? God is. And how many can say, that's a pretty safe place to be when your life is in the hands of a good God. Come on, give him a good hand today. He's worthy of our praise. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? And I want to close in prayer this morning. And I want to encourage you, don't turn me off just yet. Because whenever I go to church, I want several things to happen. If I go to church and I've got some struggles in my heart, if I've got some worries, problems, stuff to face... I'm really hoping I can have an encounter with God and I can walk out with more peace and less worry. Come on. I'm hoping to encounter. I'm hoping to pour out my soul in gratitude to my Father. And I'm hoping that there's a voice within the preacher's voice that talks to me about my life. So my question is, what is the Lord saying to you today? And what are you going to do based on what you've heard? James 1.25 from the first chapter. It says, truly happy people, which is all, what we all want, are those who carefully study God's perfect law that makes people free. That's the Bible. They don't forget what they've heard, but they obey what God's teaching says. Those who do this will be made happy. So I wonder if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you today about jealousy, envy. Has He been speaking to you about the source of the wisdom that you're listening to, about what we call secular issues? Do you look like that person whose character was first pure and peaceable and gentle? Are you open to reason and change? Are you impartial? Do I quarrel? Do I fight? Would it be easy for me to whack somebody? I pray to God I never would, but could I even kill someone because of my jealousy? Is there spiritual adultery in my own heart? Am I worldly? 
Am I proud or am I humble and godly? Do I just assume tomorrow is going to be like today? Or do I see today and hopefully tomorrow as a gift from God? Bow your head just a moment and I just want you to just take a second and say, yes, Lord. I want what James is about. James is trying to help me become truly wise. That my life is built upon biblical principles. I want to have understanding that flows from a a, a biblical worldview. And I want to become mature. I want to grow up spiritually. I don't want to just stay where I am. But I want to have the evidence of good fruit in my life. I want my life to be pleasing to you. Help me, Lord. Slip your hands to heaven. Nobody looking around. Would you say, Lord, would you just, I, I want to give you right. As I submit, submit myself to you, that was one of the conditions. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm grateful for the promise of heaven, but I want Christ to be Lord. And Lord, I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do because I have to. I want to give you permission to change my heart. So I do what I'm supposed to because I want to. Because it's pleasing to you. I want you to pray now and say, Lord, would you help me where I can't help myself or it's been too hard to change or I just I can't seem to control some of my behaviors. Come Holy Spirit today and make me into the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. Let's close this way and I want to ask you, unless you just have an emergency where you have to be, wait till our last song before you slip out because this is a moment where people are going to be making a connection with God. We're going to sing one last song but we'll have our prayer team come to the front and if you need prayer for anything, we'd be honored to pray. Maybe something in this message really sparked you. Maybe it brought up some things and you really want God to help you or, or you need to tell somebody something in a confidential way and, and ask for prayer. We'd be, we'd be honored to do that. The most important prayer we'd like to pray today is if you're here today and, and when we were talking about tomorrow and eternity, it's stuck in your mind. See, just, like, just yesterday, I was a boy on a farm in Mississippi. And the day after that, I was a guy in my early 20s in the Navy. And the day after that, I was in California. And the day after that, I moved to Texarkana. And somehow I'm 60. And I don't know how long I'm going to live. And neither do you. But I do know this. I have trusted my future to the Christ who gave his life on the cross for me. I have come to God in humility and said, God, I'm a sinner. I have done wrong. And I need your forgiveness. I have come to God and said, God, I want to give you my life. See, I was raised in church like many of you were. And I, I guess I just kind of thought that if I was more good than bad and went to church and, and, and kind of believed in God, that was enough. But it's not. Jesus himself, Scripture says, as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God, to those who would believe on his name. The Bible says that we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. It opens a path of salvation. I wonder if you're here today and say, Pastor, that's what I need. I need to commit my life to Christ. I need his forgiveness. And I want to entrust my tomorrow to him. And I want to do it today. In just a moment, as our band begins to sing, I'm going to invite you, if you want to make a commitment of your life to Christ, not to join this church, but to connect yourself to the God who loves you and has got a plan for your life. If you're willing to stop going your way, and start going His way.
And you'll come, as Billy Graham used to say, just as I am. I promise you, Jesus will change your life. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come as we sing and meet someone at the cross. We want to pray for you and give you some information that's going to help you live the Christian life. So our prayer team is coming to the front right now. We're going to begin to sing. And if you need prayer, just slip out of your chair. But most importantly, if you need to make a step to God, and here's one way you know. There's one side of you that can't wait to get out. But the other side says, give your life to Christ. You're in a spiritual battle, friend, and Jesus is calling. I hope you'll say yes. We'll see you at the cross. I love you, and I'll see you next week. Lord willing.